can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, we gotta cut you down. All right, so for this week's episode, I have a guest. It's Ian Hewitt again. Hey, Ian. Hey, Carmen. Ian is going to join me to talk about the Covington case, uh, part two. For those who don't know, Nick Sandman has gotten a second chance to sue the Washington Post after a after the judge on the case reversed part of his ruling. So I'm going to let Ian give you some background on what's happening with the Covington case. Yeah, that's right. So the judge had previously granted a motion to dismiss, dismissing the suit. This is a defamation suit by Nick Sandman. Um, And I don't know if you want to talk about the facts of the case at this point, but a motion to dismiss uh, argues that the complaint isn't sufficient to allege a cause of action. It actually doesn't add up to a legal suit. And the judge uh, agreed with the motion to dismiss. He threw the case out, but then Sandman and his lawyers moved to reconsider. So he just said, you know, let me try the argument again. I really think that if you listen to my legal arguments and you listen to the facts again, you would reverse your ruling. And the judge did, in fact, in part, reverse his ruling. And now he's going to allow the case to go forward. Okay, awesome. That's a good summary of what's happening. Okay, so do you want to, just for those, I mean, I assume most people have a good sense of what happened. Well, I shouldn't say that. Many people have a sense of what happened, but many people do not. I still see on Instagram and Facebook and stuff people talking about those evil Covington kids. So do you want to talk about what happened with the first case, just to back up a little bit, give people yeah, some so context. T- and okay. technically, and I'm being a little finicky here, but technically it's all one case. So, oh, yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, not a new lawsuit. A motion to reconsider uh, was filed in order to reconsider the dismissal of the okay. lawsuit. Okay. Yes, well, then I'll say two here. This is why I'm having Ian on for you guys, because Ian is a lawyer, not me. <laughs> so you can, you will use the correct lingo. I will not. But Minor I will, point. Yes, I will learn things. All right. Yeah, but... So I did review the pleadings in this case and the the judge's opinions, the initial opinion granting the motion to dismiss, and then the second opinion granting the motion to reconsider. And so the facts that I'm giving now are just taken from the pleadings in the case. But this all happened on the 18th. This was at a March for Life. And uh, the Covington Catholic kids were here at this march. They were recorded on video by a number of different people from different angles. And immediately on the 18th and going forward, uh, all of this video was available online. Uh, In particular, on the 19th, the very next day, one of these black nationalist Hebrew Israelite guys posted a video that was like two hours long. So you could figure out what was going on by just kind of clicking forward through these videos. If you were in good faith trying to figure out what actually happened, which is not what the Washington Post was doing. So here's something, even if you follow this case, you might not know. And I have a couple of these revelations for us today, actually, in this first one. The first one is that the initial video the Washington Post used in its first story, uh, which came out the next day on the 19th, was a one minute clip. And, you know, as I've said, there were many, many videos circulating. They were very long. So this was a very selectively edited video. And, you know, we've all seen it. This is the infamous video of just uh, Phillips banging his drum and Sandman's face and Sandman standing there smiling. For you mean minute. smirking. 
<laughs> just right. kidding. No. Smirking while white just, with Did anyone ever consider that he's smiling uncomfortably? <laughs> Doesn't have to be a smirk. I mean, he's got a right. well, banging in his my, my favorite line, I think, in the complaint was, Phillips stood inches from Sandman's face, looking directly at him and banging his drum and yelling for several minutes. I mean... <laughs> Just thinking about it rationally, commonsensically, it's hard not to see that as him being confrontational or at least aggressive. But at any rate, uh, what I was about to say is that the one-minute video was tweeted out by a Twitter account called 2020 Fight uh, that everyone now agrees was a fake Twitter account that was for sale on a website called Shoutcart. I don't know if you've heard of this before. Mm -mm. but. Uh, the timeline is like this. Uh, all this happened on the 18th. The, this Twitter account was purchased on this website, Shoutcart 2025. So, I mean, basically what this is, is the t- social media accounts for sale on this platform already have big followers. And ideally, they will not be traced to you, the person who purchases them. Mm-hmm. Someone purchased this uh, fake Twitter account to anonymously tweet out, uh, this one-minute clip that we have all seen. And then very shortly after that, on at the 19th, um, the next day, a Washington Post reporter uh, tweeted out that video. He retweeted it. Four hours after he retweeted the video, the Washington Post put out a full article um, citing the reporter who had retweeted the video and including an interview with Nathan Phillips. So is it is it plausible that... But in the four hours between him tweeting out the video on the 19th and when they put the story up four hours later with a full interview, they really you know, got a full interview with him, put it through their copy chain, posted it, credited this reporter who retweeted the, the 2020 fight video. You know, theoretically, that could have happened. But in, in light of all of the other evidence of egregious bad faith by the Washington Post, it's right. not really hard to think that there were some additional shenanigans going on here. Yeah. And you know what this reminds me of is, this reminds me so much of the Ocasio-Cortez dancing controversy. Yes, yes. Someone created this totally fake controversy by, again, getting one of these anonymous social media accounts pretending to be a conservative and tweeting out this video of Ocasio-Cortez dancing, which left all conservatives seeing all these tweets outraged about conservative outrage. <laughs> yeah, Everyone's right. saying, who, are you the one complaining? I'm not complaining. Did you complain? Who's who so mad about this? Complaining about this? Yes. Yeah, this is the convenient, like, internet Machiavelli way to mm-hmm. frame a certain issue or to manufacture. Yeah. It's like, um, like Red Cup, like Starbucks Red Cup, remember? Like, yeah, Christians are so mad. <laughs> I like, mean, yeah, only what? in the Starbucks Red Cup case, they, they didn't, no one even bought a fake Twitter account. It was, it was all just made up out of whole cloth. Yeah. But just to, to kind of summarize the actual content of the articles, uh, you know, again, many people are going to be, be familiar with them, but the Washington Post, uh, in their various articles, which they put out several over the next few days, they used words like, accosting, swarming, threatening, physically intimidating, blocking, uh, blocked Nathan Phillips' retreat. They printed allegations that the Covington kids were chanting, uh, build the wall. They were chanting Trump 2020, go back to Africa at the black Hebrew Israelites, go back to the reservation at Phillips. All of this, these were all 100% complete lies. No one ever yelled any of these things. And What's really remarkable, and this is in the uh, the pleadings by the plaintiff, 
is that you can tell Phillips is lying by just reading his quotes in the Washington Post stories because he changes his story every single interview he does with the Washington Post. The first interview with the Washington Post, he says that uh, Sandman blocked my way and wouldn't let me go around him. The very, the very next interview, the second interview that Nathan Phillips did with the Washington Post, he said, why should I go around him? You know, he was standing there, I shouldn't have to go around him. And then finally, by the seventh interview, Phillips basically portrays himself as going up to uh, Sandman because he saw Sandman's whiteness as embodying 500 years of oppression and confronting him. So (laughs) this guy, just from his interviews, you could tell he was lying. Obviously the Washington Post didn't care about that. And so were were all those interviews with the Washington Post, seven interviews with the Washington Post? Right. Every all of the ones that I just referenced were Washington Post interviews. Washington Post is the defendant here. Um, uh, right. Right. Washington Post. While other media outlets globbed onto this, uh, Waypo launched the entire story. Yeah. Uh, Waypo it was the first major media outlet to uh, retweet this 2020 fight. One minute clip. Make of that what you will. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you know, of course, four hours later, they put out the first article about yeah. all of this. Wow. So shady all around. <laughs> Oh my gosh, the embodiment of whiteness, huh? Well, that's one reason to bang your drum in someone's face, I guess. Okay, that's good background. Like you said, there were lots of really egregious pieces written and things tweeted and all of this about these Covington boys. But we won't get into all of that since specifically about the Washington Post. So We should maybe comment on the fact that there was an instant universal quote-unquote conservative reaction to this controversy which was i mean the the kind of essence of this whole story and the way it was publicized was the cultural left announcing to people on the mainstream right this is a reminder that we control the narrative and you must bow bow down before us and genuflect and pay tribute to remind us that we are in charge and the entire right did that Mm. The, the covington diocese committed absolute treason against these kids that it was supposed to protect and shepherd, betrayed them, attacked them. Uh, Charlie Kirk from TPUSA later apologized to his credit. But I mean, this is, this was universal amongst the right. Yeah. And this is such a reminder of why the sort of boomer strategy of (laughs) portraying the Democrats as the real racists is so misguided. Everyone who does that, they recognize that they're playing by the left's rules. But then they say, oh, but, you know, when the left tries to control the narrative, I won't let them all see through it. Yeah. And you just cannot do it. They've, mm-hmm. they've created and rigged the entire game of using accusations of racism to shut down conversation. Yeah. I guarantee that you know, someone like Charlie Kirk, all these conservatives who, who bowed and cowered before mm-hmm. the announcement of this controversy, they would have told themselves, you know, when the left uses this, I, I won't fall for it. I'm going to use accusations of racism against them, but I'm not going to fall for them when they pull the same thing. And mm-hmm. you're giving them the high ground. You're letting them create this structure of control. Yeah. What I noticed, and I noticed this all the time, and it's one of the most frustrating things. It's exactly what you say. So I have friends on social media that I know are not hardcore leftist progressives. I know that they're probably not even really that liberal. You know, maybe they aren't extremely conservative. Maybe they are more moderate, but they're not necessarily, they're not. But they go with the flow. Yeah, they go with the flow. But maybe they have like a few, like they probably don't like socialism. They probably don't think there are a million genders, stuff like that. 
But when stuff like this happens, <laughs> they are like the first to get on there and be like, I am so disgusted by this. And I just, this is an assault on values and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's totally coming from a place of like, they have a bunch of liberal friends on their social media. And so it's like, look guys, I'm not that really evil, bad conservative that you all think that I am. <laughs> it's like, that is not helpful in any way whatsoever to what you're trying to achieve. Like, like you said, you're just playing into the narrative that this even exists, that this scary embodiment of whiteness in the form of little Catholic boys is even a thing and that you need to defend it. It's so exactly. frustrating. Right. So frustrating. That's okay. right. It, it's their wheelhouse. As soon as you agree to the game and you prop up the game and acknowledge its legitimacy, you're allowing the left to win automatically. Yeah. Well, and this is kind of unrelated, but it's something I think about a lot. Like, have you ever heard of the term turf T E? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Trans. What is it? Trans. I I think I I kind of can sense what you're getting at. The the relatively sensible feminists, and you know, again, many many turfs. Let's be clear, are like Marxist feminists that wouldn't wouldn't agree with us on basically anything else, other right. other than they don't want to allow people with male genitals into like women's locker rooms right. and bathrooms or professional sports or something like that. Right. Exactly. But it, I mean, it's telling that in many ways they have created the narrative that's enabled the harm they're trying to prevent. Right. Right. Well, yeah. All I was going to say is I, I think it's comical to me that there are so many people trying to defend themselves against the label of turf, which is, I need to define it for people who don't know, trans exclusionary radical feminist which they don't use it to just mean radical feminists. They use it to describe anyone who has any issue with trans people in any way whatsoever. Like you said, like including men coming into the bathroom, whatever the case may be. To me, <laughs> rather than defending yourself against the smear of turf, you should just say, yes, I am trans exclusionary in numerous <laughs> cases. And you have some heads would explode, some, some minds would be blown. But that is like acknowledging that that's not evil or nefarious or wrong or unreasonable is actually much more, I think, a much better strategy and more accurate <laughs> to reality, right? Like, I don't care if you think I'm a turf, I am who I am. And I think that being trans exclusionary in numerous ways of life is like, perfectly acceptable. You know what I mean? That makes sense. That's, that's an even better point than the one that I thought you were making. And in, in large part because if you are allowing yourself to be put on the defensive, then you know you've automatically created a power dynamic unfavorable to you. Right. And also, I mean, the whole the cultural left's entire strategy of argument is to get you to you know affirm some forbidden premise or something, or acknowledge that some evil label applies to you. Yeah. And once they've succeeded in doing that, they think they've won. And if you just come in swinging and saying. I reject your premises and we can have a conversation about that if you want. But you know, if you want to call me trans exclusionary, then fine. Let's actually talk about substance. On your definition of trans exclu exclusionary, I am trans exclusionary. <laughs> yeah. They, they just don't know how to process that. Yeah. And as their heads explode. Um, and it, you, you then are a trailblazer. Now you're on novel turf probably with the person you're arguing with because they've never gotten past that point in a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you might just run screaming from the room. At that novel point. turf. Sorry, it was a pun. new new terrain. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, that's good. Well, in what you said is completely accurate. Like we were 
we were when we were at Politicon, it was Michael Knowles debating Chris Hahn, who I guess is a guy on Fox, the aggressive progressive or something. Um, but he, they were going back and forth, and oh, and Clay Aiken was the moderator for whatever reason, the failed mm. American Idol singer. Um, he was the moderator, and he did exactly what you described. He interrupted Michael Knowles to say. Michael, were there very fine people at that Charlottesville rally? Were there? Were there? Were there really fine people at that Charlottesville rally? Just like needling him and needling him. And Michael Knowles did a good job. You know, he, I forget exactly what he said, but he diffused it. And then he said, and what you're doing, Clay, is exactly what people like to do to Donald Trump. And the room like erupted with applause for that. And speaking of media bias, I mean, that whole fantasy is a fantastic illustration of the systemic bad faith trend amongst the media. The fact that they took this quote and invented uh, a meaning behind the statement and just persuaded half the country that Trump said something that he clearly did not if you read like the sentence preceding it and following it. Exactly. It's not even it's not even remotely close to meaning what they imply that it means and still right. to this day that is their go-to thing if you if someone if you ask someone to prove to you that trump is a racist that is what they have <laughs> that little made-up thing from three years ago it's, it's like if he's such a racist i feel like there should be more evidence just just my thoughts but maybe some yeah. not fake <laughs> right some some real evidence but anyways that was kind of a tangent but probably an important one i think i think we're both just getting at the point getting at the point that conservatives need to stop cowering and playing by this dumb game of defend yourself against fake slander. <laughs> like, just head on, take control of the narrative. But anyways, back to Covington. So where where is the case at now at this present moment? So uh, let me, I should probably cover the dismissal of the case. Okay. Um, so that this is a federal district court and the judge, this is, uh, I don't know if we want to get into the legal weeds here, but I, I should just drop one sort of Easter egg for any lawyers that might be listening. The judge is William O. Bertelsman, and William O. Bertelsman is most well known for having been overturned in, uh, and I, I don't mean to be profane here, but this was the name of the case, a case called Jones v. Dirty World. And th- in this case, the Circuit Court of Appeals, who overturned Bertelsmann, held that uh, the Communications Decency Act gives very broad protections to content sharing websites. This is this is one of the main cases that you know conservatives might point to in saying that the federal government is shielding large tech companies uh, like Facebook and allowing them to engage in censorship they otherwise wouldn't be able to engage in. So uh, this this website, Dirty World, was like a gawker type website. And Bertelsmann, the federal district judge, had ruled against that. He'd ruled against the the quasi gawker website and then he was overturned. So he's he's not like uh, I'm always going to reflexively side with the media um, sort of a judge. Yeah. Which, Which makes it quite strange that he arrived at the conclusion that he did his opinion dismissing the case, I thought was very weak. He basically, he doesn't address all of the allegations in the complaint. He says things like, well, a cost has many meanings, you know, which 
it's pretty clear what the meeting was in light of all of the other allegations in the complaint. And then in his second opinion, where he grants the motion to reconsider, he makes three points, basically. He says, there, these are the three reasons I'm granting this motion. He says, first, uh, you've changed my mind. I do think that the statements that he blocked Phillips and he wouldn't allow Phillips to go around him, quote unquote, uh, those are statements of fact, not just opinion, which, you know, there was pl- this was adequately demonstrated in the original complaint. Weird. So uh, it's not, you know, there are a variety of explanations for why he might have changed his mind, but that's all that happens. He changed his mind. There was no new evidence. And then he says, all right, I, you've persuaded me now because you've pled with greater specificity that the Washington Post should have known if Phillips was lying. Uh, he, the judge is suggesting that wasn't clear to me in the original complaint that they should have known Phillips was lying. Okay. But uh, you, now you've pled with greater specificity that, that they should have known. But again, it is, there was more than enough in the original complaint to show that they should have known Phillips was lying. And then finally, he says, all right, I, I'm persuaded that by looking at the video that Waypo distributed, you could tell that this was Sandman. So he's saying, you know, initially, I didn't even think that you could tell that uh, Nicholas Sandman was the guy being described. But not only is it clear from the original complaint that you could tell this was about Sandman, but they actually, the plaintiffs said in their original complaint that in one of the Washington Post articles, Nicholas Sandman was referenced by name. His name was in there. And when I read that um, in the complaint, I thought, you know, I must have gotten this whole thing wrong. This this must be an amended complaint because this complaint is so clearly sufficient. There's no way the judge could have dismissed the case. But and, but I double checked and I looked at the dates and no, that was in the original complaint that he was referenced by name. So Weird. for some, there's a variety of ways that this could have happened. District court judges have multiple law clerks. There could have been some like backroom politics among the law clerks. They could have brought in a more persuasive lawyer to argue the case that just had a better way with words and was better at persuading judges. But I mean, the bottom line here is there were no really new facts or legal arguments introduced. The judge just changed his mind. Wow, weird. Well, that's I mean, like you're, you gave good good possibilities. Is there any, I don't know, this, this shows how little I know about how these decisions are made, but this happened very shortly after the whole Washington Post thing with uh, Baghdadi. Remember when they came out with that horrendous headline about the austere religious scholar and everyone you was know, roasting them? I don't, want, I don't want to get off on too much of a rabbit trail, but you and I might actually disagree on this. I don't, you've never disagreed on a podcast. <laughs> what do we disagree but, on? But I, I, I thought that probably too much was made of that headline. I, uh, I think it is relevant to know like the personality and the like the motivations of a person like Baghdadi and. I, I mean, obviously, I think the Washington Post is evil. I mean, I think they, <laughs> yes. they literally made all this stuff up in bad faith. But my, my inclination as the person who wrote that headline actually wasn't trying to say that Baghdadi is a, a good guy. Uh, now, the, the, I do think the coverage of Baghdadi was very, very biased of his death. And it was biased in that people were trying to minimize Trump's influence and minimize the credit that was given to Trump, whereas tremendous credit was given to President Obama for Osama bin Laden's death ah. under similar circumstances. So we would agree on that, yes. but um, I'm, I'm probably like the only person <laughs> that I know though that didn't <laughs> yeah. have a problem with the headline. So I'm, I'm in the minority, I acknowledge. No, that's interesting. I don't know. I guess to me, so similar to like the 
now the thing with the Mormon family that's been murdered. The idea that oh, you would yeah. highlight that he's austere and he's a scholar when <laughs> he's mostly known for being a rapist and a terrorist. It's just, I don't know. It's a little... Well, we're, we're in total agreement on the Mormons thing. And I'll, this is, I'll make one more point about this and then I'll give you the last word oh, um, wait, no, before that's okay. we talk about the rest of the, the Covington stuff. But... Um, there was a fantastic article in The Atlantic. It was a few years ago, I think, by this guy, Graeme Wood, G-R-A-E-M-E, that was just an in-depth examination of ISIS and their motives. And he talked about this, the fact that the group is basically led by religious scholars, and he was kind of examining the motives of people who leave, uh, Muslims who leave Western countries to join ISIS. And his general thesis was that ISIS is sort of positing itself as an alternative to empty secular Western modernity in that they offer this like transcendent metaphysical narrative and they, they offer genuine meaning from the standpoint of their, their followers. And it was sort of, you know, it's, it's kind of like the controversy around the Joker, I think. Um, the Joker kind of, the film, the Joker portrays the psychology and the background of an evil character. And so the critics on the left said, well, therefore you're justifying the actions of the evil character. I think it is relevant to try to understand like the motives of someone like ISIS. And I, lots of conservatives liked that Graham Wood article actually, um, because they said, you know, this, this kind of illustrates the linkage between his theology and, and his actions. So I, I, my instinct was the person who wrote that, um, well yeah that's interesting no i can get what you're saying i guess i because it's from the washington post i assumed it was politically motivated but i think you're right like possibly if it was coming from somewhere else and maybe with some acknowledgement (laughs) that this is an evil person we're talking about like that maybe i wouldn't have had such a reaction to it but no that's interesting i guess i i could be you know, maybe I should give the Washington Post less credit. I guess you <laughs> basically can't put anything past Washington Post. At this yeah, point. that's that is true. So back to the Covington kids. So with all this new stuff going on, can they win this case? Do you think Frank? they definitely can win? Um, I don't know if they will win, but I think in light of what I've seen in the pleadings, um, the fact that the judge has granted the motion to reconsider. And I think it maybe even helps that he granted the motion to reconsider without any new arguments or facts being raised, because that could just indicate for one reason or another, him or or his law clerks or whomever are just more sympathetic now to the Covington plaintiffs. And I think given his background as a judge who thinks that um, the First Amendment doesn't mean that the media gets to engage in massive privacy violations and defamation and things of that kind, uh, you know, things could turn out well for Sandler. Well, that's optimistic then. And then um, last question there. Uh, or no, I was going to, is, is Nick Sandman still seeking $250 million? I did not look at the damages. Okay. Um, I don't know how much he's seeking, but you know that sounds about right. That was the original amount, so I hope he still wants that, <laughs> and I hope he gets all of it. I hope he gets every. Whatever last. amount is required to put Washington Post out of business, that's the amount that he should seek. Yes, 
Exactly. They're, I think they should pretty much be done. I think they have exhausted all of, at least obviously in my case, they have exhausted any faith that I would have in them to do anything ethically or seek the truth. So I'm kind of hoping that they'll be done with this. And then my final question for you, and maybe this will get us into a couple other offshoot type things, but how does this happen? How does the media get away with this so often? I mean, just in our conversation about Covington, we've covered like five other things. <laughs> so how do all of these ridiculous breaches right. of, you know, public trust by the media happen? Well, historically, um, especially over the last several decades, courts have granted very, very broad latitude to the media when it comes to accusations of defamation. And probably the most outrageous example I can think of is when George Zimmerman sued NBC uh, for playing an edited version of his 911 call that was clearly maliciously edited to make him sound racist. I remember that. They they pasted together the words, he looks like he's up to no good, he looks black, when those things were not in the same place as in the conversation. The only reason in the call Zimmerman said he looks black is the officer asked for a description of him. Right. So there's no no doubt, no rational person. Even if you're hardcore anti-Zimmerman, pro Trayvon Martin, no one can really dispute that NBC, someone at NBC maliciously doctored this thing in bad faith to advance a narrative. And the court still said, you need proof of malice. So like basically what the judge would have required in that case was like a recording of NBC, like executives cackling to themselves and saying like, let's doctor the tape. So that it's been so broad and yeah. Yeah. I, I want to kind of, you know, there are a variety of reasons that that could be the case. I, I think that at least some judges um, do just think that it's important in the American tradition to uh, make sure that we don't chill media coverage and we, we give them some kind of room to slip up in order to have a really vigorous media. But uh, I want to point to a kind of a similar phenomenon that occurred in the late 1800s in the U.S. In the late 1800s, there was a very similar thing going on uh, where the media were engaging in the United States in massive privacy violations. And they were uh, just covering intimate details of people's lives that there was absolutely no public interest in, had nothing to do with, with politics or religion or substantive issues. And uh, Louis Brandeis, who became a famous Supreme Court justice, um, he wasn't on the Supreme Court yet. He wrote a famous law review article saying courts need to create more remedies for privacy violations. And this is a fantastic article, by the way. And Brandeis talks in this article, and I'm paraphrasing, he's more eloquent um, than I am here. I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to be less eloquent than him because I can't remember the killer quotes he has verbatim. But I mean, the gist of it is, he says, this kind of constant privacy violation by the media, this constant reporting on the private details of people's lives, it's not just hurting the people whose privacy is being violated, it's making us worse and dumber as a society. Um, It's making us incapable of discussing real issues. It's sapping our, our intellect and our clarity as a culture. And so the courts need to, for that reason, afford a remedy to people whose privacy is being violated. And this was very influential and courts started to affirm uh, and hold at that point that people could recover for tortious privacy violations. And I think that maybe, and there are, maybe there are certain signs of this already, but maybe a similar thing could happen now that 
I think it's very clear the media is not just slanted, that there are media outlets engaging in absolute systemic fraud, Mm -hmm. clearly making up out of whole cloth stories in bad faith, and in many cases causing harm in the real world by making up these stories. I think the NBC editing is a good example. Michael Brown in Ferguson, that was an absolute fiction created by the media. Virtually all the witnesses have since recanted. One witness in that case not only said that she was lying, um, but said that she specifically tailored her statement to fit what the media was already reporting. Um, no, there was no no witness, not even any of the witnesses who were lying, ever claimed, and this is according to the Department of Justice, none of the witnesses ever claimed that Michael Brown even said, don't shoot, and that was widely reported in the media. The Milwaukee editing in 2016, uh, I think that it is very clear that, in, and again, there's no conspiracy here. Independently of each other, all of these outlets are lying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because cultural progressivism through its fictitious uh, victim hierarchy and kind of hallucinatory concepts of sexism, racial grievance mongering has created this culture that incentivizes and encourages lying. And so people are just doing it independently of each other. It's, Mm -hmm. it's the same reason you've got the dreadlocks girl and you've got Jussie Smollett and so on. And all these very similar fake stories at uh, Kansas state. At our alma mater, yeah. within a, within a few years, there were two independently of each other fake racist graffiti incidents where it, it was massively publicized that there was racist graffiti, and then later it was found that the student who did the graffitiing was black um, and, right. and hoaxed themselves. Yes. So, I mean, all this stuff happens just because of the air that cultural progressivism has created, yep. not because there's anyone orchestrating it. And I I think what I was getting at is that perhaps now there's room to say to courts, because we're beyond bias and we're on slip ups and we're we're beyond even disregard for the facts, we're into the realm of systematic fraud that is causing harm. Now it's time to allow genuine remedies for defamation against the media. Oh, that's a good point. I hope so. Well, and what you're saying makes me think too, are you following the the whole impeachment Ukraine thing, whistleblower. Peripherally. Yeah. There's always new stuff about it. So it's hard to stay on top of it. But now they're saying that the whistleblowers source for his story was the New York times, which the New York times is the one who ran the story about the whistleblower. It's like a big circle. <laughs> it's like, this isn't, yes. this isn't a true source. Like, your source cannot be the source reporting about you. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Like you know, that reminds me so much of in in this case that happened in the fifth Washington Post article about Covington. They opened the article by saying that, um, or I don't know if they opened it. This the statement was somewhere in the article that the controversy had sent a ripple of fear and anger across the country, and it's like. Well, you you created it. You're just reporting on what you're doing. It's there's this phenomenon of the media thinks they can just speak into existence the reality they want. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the the fake bombing footage from that Kentucky gun range. Right. Um, I actually I walked by that playing on a TV in a gym, and the the uh, text on the bottom of the screen said something like, you know, U.S. 
ally Kurds massacred an all-out slaughter. It's just like they're so clearly just trying to create the reality they want and yeah. telling you exactly what to think that it's, I mean, it's cartoonishly dystopian. Everyone, any thinking person must be able to see that this is what's happening. Yes. Well, and I think, like you said, it stems to the whole cultural, progressive, Marxist-rooted reality, or not reality, but they desperately want it to be reality. Like, they desperately want these things to be true, but they're not true. <laughs> so they have to create blatantly fake things to make them happen. Like, all those examples you gave, ranging from just individuals in college who want to pretend to be victims all the way up to faking a massacre in Syria. Right. Like, that's exactly. crazy. That's crazy. And this fits into what we were talking about earlier, about letting the left kind of set the boundaries of the Overton window. If you're Jesse Smollett and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, should I perpetrate this hoax on the country? You can imagine him thinking... You know, well, not only will this increase my status and bolster my career and various people will compliment me and say wonderful things about me, but also no one will be allowed to question me. Anyone who questions me will be maligned, you know, even though there have been dozens of similar hoaxes before that have all turned out to be false all of the time. This still no one will question this. And, and you know, it was sensible of him to think that. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't wrong about that. So in that kind of culture, is it surprising that all these media outlets would independently tell very similar lies? Right. Um, yeah. Actually, so speaking of that, multiple people lied about uh, the Covington incident independently of each other. And at least two people did. And I bring this up because I want to tell you a little bit about one that has received uh, very little media coverage. All right. So Nathan Phillips, of course, himself said uh, many times that people, they were chanting, go back to the reservation and build the wall and things of that kind. But according, and I'm just taking this from the complaint, by the way, I didn't go and look at the original Washington Post stories, but according to the complaint, there was another source um, an independent photojournalist from South Carolina uh, who was there to cover this American Indian rally. He was quoted by the Washington Post as saying that the Covington Catholic kids said, build the wall, that they were chanting Trump 2020, and that they were surrounding Nathan Phillips. This guy's name was John Staganga, and I, I Googled this guy, and guess uh, what John Staganga's worldview is? <laughs> hmm, I don't, I, I don't have any ideas. What could it possibly be? You know, actually, not only does he kind of portray himself as a social justice activist, but oh. he seems to be one of our very own social justice activists. He seems to be a social justice Christian. Oh. Um, he, he talks on his website about... Uh, God calling him to use his photojournalism to care for the vulnerable. And he, he also, I mean, if you look at like video of him talking, it's pretty, he's got that like Christian-y, churchy way of speaking. Um, and so I'm quite, I'm quite sure that um, that's the place that he's coming from. I think yeah. you can reasonably infer that from the evidence. And, you know, my, this guy has, has basically escaped negative media attention for this. And so I, my, certainly I don't want people to go out and, uh, and malign him and attack him. I thought that. Public shaming is not the way to to rectify uh, sin. Um, it's not. It shouldn't be your first resort. But I I do bring that up to, and I think as we said earlier, the Covington kids may may already get um, just recompense through the court system. But I think it's telling if you are a believer who's interested in the social justice narrative, uh, look at where it seems to have taken this believer. I mean, clearly. The, the obviously malevolent aspects of it, the aspects of it that encourage lying, mm -hmm. 
or at least imagining false events that demonstrably did not occur, those can win out over your Christian commitment to the truth, for example. I mean, that's how powerful and poisonous and monolithic this thing is. And that's that's all the more reason that Christians should stand up and not allow it to have this creeping influence in the church. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's a very good point. I agree. Well, right. Exactly. Like you said, the, the idea that this person, you know, is coming from the Christian perspective, supposedly, and would go to these lengths to defame and put in danger these Catholic boys for attending a pro-life rally. You know, it's just like, it's mind-boggling that, that that one can think you're acting nobly and acting in a way that honors God and do that. Like, you know, like like you said, like that's a, there's just a level of either extreme self-deception happening or a conscious, strange outworking of their belief. I mean, it's it's vengeful, right? Like it's, it's, I mean, I'm assuming I usually what I think when I think of social justice warriors, particularly Christians, they think that by victimizing these types of people that they've decided are villains, that they're bringing about justice, but they'll do it even when the person is innocent. You know, it's a very good point. I, I think this whole phenomenon of systematic lying about these kinds of innocence should make us wonder, you know, when when cultural progressives have no evidence for their victim hierarchy and when the only evidence is this invisible uh, ghast of patriarchy or white privilege or something that just conveniently is only ever confirmed by results. The results are all the evidence that you need. Disparity of outcome is all you ever need to show the, uh, you know, it's just odorless, uh, imperceptible cloud of, of white privilege or patriarchy or these other victim constructs. You know, to what extent do they really believe that? Are there large numbers of people that in fact don't think that that's the case and really are motivated by something more like just traditional ordinary vengeance that's not particularly philosophical or based on these egalitarian premises. I, I think that all of these incidents happening independently of each other, uh, where people are engaging in this kind of lying, should make us wonder about that. Yeah, thank you. You much more eloquently described what I was trying to describe there. Last thoughts. So you would call yourself a libertarian, right? Yeah. You are, you're not Absolutely. a... You're, yes. I would, I would call myself a conservative who wants to be a libertarian. <laughs> um, I think libertarians are cooler. But uh, one no, little... libertarianism, by the way, is just a set of policy positions. So when I say I'm a libertarian, all I mean is that every one of my policy positions is going to minimize the scope of the government and is going to decentralize political power and empower individual choice. But I mean, you can arrive at those policy positions from different underlying political philosophies. Sure. And sure. conservatism is traditionally conceived of as a political philosophy. Yes, right. That's a good explanation. One thing I notice in libertarian circles more than probably conservative ones or liberal ones mm-hmm. is when we complain about the media, <laughs> when we say this is wrong, like they are obviously acting in bad faith, they're ruining people's lives. Many libertarians are quick to say, well, they can they can do that. It's their own company. Like it's sort of, you know, it takes on like this weird, like we shouldn't try to regulate or intervene in that way whatsoever because that would be infringing on their liberty. I don't know if I'm describing that conflict 
exactly. No, there, there is that kind of string among some libertarians, definitely. And I would say, I think those people just haven't thought their position through. Um, I believe I'm a free speech absolutist. I, I think that you should be able to advocate whatever political or religious or philosophical position you choose. And I think that's the kind of thing protected by the First Amendment. If you just read the text of the First Amendment, you can tell that that's what it's about. But, you know, it's not that I think there should be some exception for defamation. I just think defamation, which is an individualized injury recoverable in the adversarial common law process where it's a dispute between two litigants, it's not some legislator setting policy for everyone. That's a totally separate thing. And to see how this works, just look at breach of contract claims. You know, if you're a libertarian, do you think the two parties should be able to enter into a contract? Because economies, the kinds of economies that libertarians want, don't operate if contracts aren't binding. Mm -hmm. People are not going to honor contracts just out of goodwill if there is no court system to enforce those contracts. Ah. I'm not advocating for some centralized government. I think there are all kinds of different common law type court systems you could have that could enforce contracts. But if a court can enforce contracts, which breach of contract is an individual injury, it's not a violation of a criminal law, you haven't done anything criminal by breaching a contract, then courts should also be able to remedy things like fraud, like putting a medicine label on a bottle of poison and selling it as medicine, or making false accusations against your business uh, competitor in order to disparage them and to undermine their business and have more people go to you. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I think any well thought out libertarian social political order is going to have a remedy for. And there should be a remedy for bad faith, defamation, for fraud, for breach of contract, for these are called torts. They're not crimes. Uh, It's a, a separate category of legal enforcement. Okay. Very good. Good. Well, what do you think about someone who's, you know, not quite ready to identify as a libertarian, it sounds like? Oh, what do I think about that? I I agree completely with what you said. I don't know how on earth we could. I mean, I think we are already seeing like so much of what we've discussed today. If these media outlets can get away with this, I mean, we're undermining everything that we want to stand for. That You know, like, I mean, we can't trust each other. We can't trust what we're reading to be accurate. So how are we going to make the correct, how are we going to come to the right conclusion about anything? And I mean, what we've been discussing, I think, is like you've made a good distinction between what is protected in free speech as far as advocating for any particular position that you want openly, like all of that, obviously, but splicing together someone's phone call to make them sound like a racist and then playing that on NBC, like there, that can't be okay. Like, you know, it doesn't, there obviously has to be repercussions for NBC to do that. This is an, yeah, it's an actual individualized injury. Um, and we're talking about litigation between private parties, not state policy. And, you know, I mentioned uh, mislabeling medicine a minute ago, but, you know, depending upon the facts, that could be uh, civil and criminal. And it's telling that that is not that different from what the media did in Ferguson. There were clearly journalists uh, just lying there and lying in a way that caused actual real real world harm. And they knew that it would cause that kind of harm. And they did it anyway to advance a particular narrative. So that's telling about the extent to which we've crossed into this very dangerous territory of wanton systematic media fraud being the norm. Exactly. Yep. 
Yeah, and I, <laughs> I have taken one of those, you know, those little political compass tests that tells you what you are. I was <laughs> the, the, in with the four quadrants. Yes, with the four quadrants. I was a conservative libertarian, but I'm right at the very top next to authoritarian. <laughs> so I'm totally, I'm right on the edge of. No, no, Carmen. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Everyone. You know, the, I mean, the fact is that if we empower the legislature to decide to have too much power over what we can and cannot say, then that's immediately going to be used against people like you. And of me. course. That's in any centralized system of government in the contemporary West. So, you know, we right. can philosophize in more de detail, but that I think it makes it an open and shut case right there, whether we should have an authoritarian system of government. Exactly. Yeah. No, in my ideal world where the authoritarians are perfect <laughs> and, you know, Christians and never going to abuse their power, be good but nope and i think we can have systems like that if we have a decentralized political order because then you can have a market of policy and you can have certain regions or localities where you actually do have uh, very enlightened christian policymakers. i think that's viable on a small scale and yeah. that's part of why we should aspire to decentralized political power yeah i agree any last thoughts on fake news the anatomy of fake news what people should be aware of. I mean, you've given, I think you've given people a lot of good things to think about. Well, I guess one thing I was thinking about before we started this episode is that, you know, a lot of people talk about, and I mentioned the Communications Decency Act earlier. Um, this is something a lot of conservatives have proposed doing is amending Section 230 of the CDA to take away these special protections that social media companies have. Maybe you could also do that through litigation without changing the law. I think that, uh, what's his name, Bertelsmann, I think it is, the judge in this case, he was actually right in his reading of the CDA and his original opinion. I don't think the CDA was meant to um, allow uh, censorship on content sharing sites of political or religious views um, and, and then give those tech companies special protections under the law that other entities wouldn't have. But, you know, one aspect of that whole debate is that the social media companies that engage in this kind of censorship are perpetuating the monopoly that big media companies enjoy. Because where is there really going to be a demand for alternative media? It's going to be among people who have dissident political, philosophical, cultural views. And if those kinds of outlets are censored, and censored in part because the government is propping up these major entities, then that's going to allow the media to engage in this because they have no competition. Mm -hmm. There's no one, no one coming at the thing from a fundamentally different set of premises. So these issues, I think, are very much related. They shouldn't be separated into two kind of discrete categories. This is all one phenomenon. That's an interesting point. I mean, obviously, with Stasios, we're striving to provide sort of a different dissident cultural take on issues from the Christian perspective. Um, are there other places that you think it's worthwhile for people who are probably listening to this to look into that they might not know about yet? Well, you know, most of the, the outlets that share perspectives like ours are opinion outlets. Yeah. Um, I would like there to be a more robust Christian media. And to be sure, there are many Christian outlets. Um, you know, uh, there's great reporting that comes from the Christian Post. Mm -hmm. I think these outlets are 
they're probably not just not well funded enough to have on the ground reporters in a lot of cases when they report on persecution you know i'd love to see more often and we're talking about overseas persecution here reporters actually like going to these countries and covering the events on the ground and i think maybe what needs to change in the church in you know this is part of a broader problem where the church doesn't see itself as needing to be engaged in a range of different cultural areas but I think maybe the church has just undervalued journalism as a Christian vocation. And if it reemphasized it, we might see more funding going to these kinds of Christian outlets to do the work that the media isn't doing. I mean, a, a robust Christian media could engage not just with issues specific to Christians, but could cover these kinds of issues, honestly, where the media is refusing to do so. Yeah, that's a very good point. And then just that just makes me think of a secondary question, but I'm interested on your perspective on it. You know, I think at least in some areas, there has been pushes, a big push within churches to try to get Christians engaged in various spheres of life, whether it's business or the arts or something like that. But weird trend, at least I don't know about business and medicine in those fields as much as the arts, but Christians in the arts tend to be completely swallowed up by the social justice version of Christianity. I assume because the liberal arts are, you know, primarily run by social justice warrior types. How could the church combat that? You know, I, I mean, know. That's, that's a hard question. In, in fact, in the context of journalism, it's especially clear we would need to just have Christian outlets. Because maybe some secular, like, big recording companies are going to put out Christian music. Uh, You know, like, I don't know who put out uh, Kanye West's album, but I'm guessing Kanye West can put out an album with whoever he dang well wants to. I would think. Um, But in the the journalism context, you know, if you're a Christian journalist and you're covering Ferguson and your employers have already decided to push a false narrative of the events in bad faith, they're just not going to air the work that you right. do. So yeah. obviously we need to have Christian outlets where every level of the organization is run by believers yeah. and that they can offer a genuine alternative to these kinds of entities. Yes. Okay, cool. Well, I think we've talked about a lot of stuff. I'm very um, excited. It was a very wide ranging conversation. <laughs> really no, we was. did not just talk about Covington. It really was. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited that you are, you are of the belief that maybe the Covington kids could pull it out. That'd be pretty be pretty cool. I, I think they could, and I hope that if they do, it starts to signal a general trend in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of what you've said suggests that that's a possibility. So definitely something for people to pray for and work towards. So as always, thanks for being on the podcast, Ian. Thanks for having me, Carmen. He spoke to me as a voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels He called my name and my heart stood still When he said, John, go do my will 